see you all here this morning. Wasn't that worship beautiful? I was just a little bit afraid that Becky might kind of give birth on stage, but apart from that, it was beautiful. We've got a doctor in the house, I can see, so we're all good. I want to start this morning um, with a test. I know it's a bit mean, but I've got the microphone, so there you go. And this test is kind of uh, to see how old you are. Mm. And you have to be honest now, okay? So some images are going to come up on the uh, screen. First of all, we should have one of these. It's called a crank telephone. How many, now be honest now, how many of you grew up using one of these? Oh, hello, you're really old, really, really old. Next, we have an image. Okay, who grew up using one of these? You're kind of old, okay, sorry. Then we have, we, we really moved up in the world. We had the cordless one. And uh, who grew up using one of these? Well, you, you're kind of showing your grey hair there. We used to always um, lose a handset. Did that happen to everybody else? Where's the blooming handset? And then finally, who grew up using only one of these? Uh, oh, wow, not many. Okay, well, if you did, you're really, really young. Okay, let's move on to the televisions. Actually, before this one, who grew up with no television? Oh, you're, you're just off the Richter scale there. Who grew up using one of these? Oh, watching one of these. Yeah. Next image, you're, you're, you're old. This one, colour TV but no remote control. That's me. We're kind of old. Next one. This had remote control, it was colour, but um, it was a little bit large. And the final one, who grew up only watching one of these? Has to be at least 60 inch wide, I'm told. My kids come to my house and ours is about this big and they say, you've got the smallest TV in the world, Mum. And go, whatever. <laughs> so, you've worked out how old you are now. Are you feeling depressed? You can get rid of the image now. Change is inevitable, isn't it? Everywhere we look around us, our world, our culture, people are ever-changing. It's just inevitable. Not in, just in the field of technology like we've just seen, but in every facet of life. The gospel message, however, the good news that Jesus died, that he rose again so that we might have life, never changes, does it? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever, and our focus on Jesus and living a Christ-centered life should never change. But the way we present that good news has to change and adapt. How we share Jesus has to be grounded in an understanding of our culture, in an understanding of what the people around us are asking. It doesn't do much good to wish things were different. Oh, I wish things were like they were in the good old days when we had black and white TV. This is the world that we live in. These are the people that we are called to reach. This is our mission field. And you may or you may not like the changes that you see around you. Some change in our culture has been great. Some has been devastating. But the fastest pathway to ineffectiveness in the church is to ignore those changes. We want to be a church that listens, 
that understands, that seeks to know the questions that our community are asking, that actually is willing to engage with them in order to bring the hope of Jesus. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm reading from the message. He says, Even though I am free of the demands and expectations of everyone, I have voluntarily become a servant to any and all in order to reach a wide range of people, religious, non-religious, meticulous moralists, loose-living immoralists, the defeated, the demoralised, whoever. I didn't take on their way of life. I kept my bearings in Christ, but I entered their world and tried to experience things from their point of view. I've become just about every sort of servant there is in my attempts to lead those I meet into a God-saved life. I did all this because of the message. I didn't just want to talk about it. I wanted to be in on it. It's powerful, isn't it? In other words, Paul is saying, I'll do whatever it takes, whatever, it, um, whatever works to bring people to Jesus. Craig Rochelle puts it this way. He says, we will do anything short of sin to reach people who don't know Jesus. Now, as many of you would know, we've been working our way through the book of Acts and we're in the second act, if you like, the second part of the book of Acts. And today we find ourselves in Acts 17 and 18, which I think we'll find one of the clearest examples in all the Bible of this truth. The message never changes, but the method must. Would you pray with me before we continue? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your word, which you promises will never return void, but it will accomplish that which you purpose. And I pray that your word goes forth this morning and that it meets people where they are at and that it transforms us from the inside out so that we go from this place more like Jesus. Amen. Before we jump into our text for today, I just, I just want to backtrack a little to Acts chapter 2. Now, if you remember, I'm sure you do, you know where, what Acts 2 says, don't you? No. Acts 2 is where um, Luke records Peter's famous um, sermon, if you like, to the um, Jews in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. He preaches his message, 3,000 people believe and are baptised in the Holy Spirit. It's not a bad day in the life of church, is it? And in his sermon, Peter uses Old Testament stories, Old Testament scriptures to point the Jews to Jesus. He uses what's familiar with them, kind of like a bridge to reach them with the gospel. That's Acts 2. Now fast forward 15 chapters and we're now in Acts 17. And this is where Paul is preaching to the Athenians in Greece, to the Gentiles, the first recorded sermon to the Gentiles. And the way Paul presents this message is very different from the way Peter presented his message back in Acts chapter 2. The message is the same, Jesus. The packaging is very different. Paul knew that he couldn't preach... I don't know what that's doing up there, but you can take that away for now. <laughs> Paul um, presents Jesus, but in a very different way, because he knew that you can't preach a Jerusalem message in Athens. It just wouldn't work. 
And Peter knew that you couldn't preach an Athens message in Jerusalem. See, the apostles were driven to use whatever worked, whatever it took to reach people for Jesus. Like Paul said, to the Jews I do Jew, to the Gentiles I do Gentile. I do whatever it takes. That's bronze paraphrase version. These two towns, Jerusalem and Athens, they were thousands of kilometres apart geographically, but also culturally they were worlds apart. And we're going to look at a couple of those differences in a moment of those two towns. But as we do, I want you to think to yourself, what is our world more like today? Is it more like Acts 2 or Acts 17? Is it more like a Jerusalem culture or an Athens culture? So here we go, Jerusalem first. Jerusalem had um, hosted the worship of the one true God for over a thousand years. They had one God, Jehovah. They knew the scriptures. They knew the stories of Abraham, Moses, David and the prophets. They were kind of a moral city as far as ancient standards went, with a strict moral code. They knew that some kind of Messiah was coming and they were looking for that Messiah. They knew that Jesus had um, claimed to be that Messiah, that he had been crucified and reportedly had risen from the dead. So that's kind of the culture in a nutshell, very simplified. Athens, on the other hand, Athens too was a religious town, but it had a multiple, multiple options of gods. It was like a smorgasbord of religious options. And the God of Jerusalem didn't feature on that, that smorgasbord. They worshipped philosophy just as much as they did the gods. It's a home of Socrates and Apollos and, and Plato, you might, uh, Aristotle, sorry. They considered themselves to be a, a smart, sophisticated society. They were highly sexualized, and uh, there was a lot of sexual deviance even in their religions. They weren't looking for a Messiah. They didn't know the scriptures. And the idea of a resurrection was just plain weird to them. Now you tell me, are we living in a Jerusalem culture or an Athens culture? Acts 2 or Acts 17? I think perhaps the world maybe my parents grew up in might have had touches of Acts 2, but we've kind of morphed into an Acts 17 culture. And it's in Athens that Paul encounters people of different beliefs, different backgrounds, different value systems, different perspectives. And so too will we inevitably encounter people that believe differently than us, that perhaps have little or no knowledge of Jesus. How do we respond in those situations? How do we engage with those people that have different beliefs and perspectives than we have? My hope is this morning that as we look at Acts 17, we'll gain some insights into how Paul engaged with the culture in Athens. And hopefully that'll give us some insight into how to engage with our community today. Because this is big. This is big. Because like Paul, we are all sent we are all called to be hope traffickers in our world, aren't we? And if the people who claim to know Jesus don't share Jesus, then, then who will? So Luke tells us in the first few verses of Acts 17 that Paul preaches in Thessalonica to the Jews and they get all uppity and offended by his message and so he has to move on to Berea and he preaches in Berea. They're a little bit more responsive. But then the troublemakers from um, Thessalonica come across, stir up trouble and eventually he's um, forced to move on, on his own, to Athens. He's not with Silas anymore, and he's just waiting for them to join him. 
He's not there on an official mission trip. He's not there to start a new church. He's simply waiting. And something quite remarkable happens in the waiting. Let's read Acts 17, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now, we're going to stop there for a moment. I studied Greek history, ancient Greek history, in year 11 and 12. Call me a nerd, because I was. That's okay. But I soon discovered that there were a whole lot of Greek gods. There's a whole stack of them, because we had to memorize them, and we had to work out which one went with which. There was an ancient saying that said it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was a human. Everywhere you looked in um, Athens, there was a temple to a certain god. And even today, you can see those temple ruins still existing. And when people encountered those temples, they had one of two responses. They were either enamoured by them. They were like, oh, they're amazing. I want to be part of them. I want to um, join whatever they're believing. Or they were offended and repulsed by them and ran away. Let's see what Paul's response is. Acts 17, 18 to 21. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Not so much unlike our culture, is it? Paul wasn't enamoured by the idols, nor was he repulsed by them or offended by them. He was actually heartbroken. And that breaking of his heart caused him to move in compassion and want to actually respond to them. And so he goes to the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus is just the place where they met to discuss all their new ideas and their new philosophies. So he goes to the very place where he knows he can interact with them. What is our response today? Sadly, sometimes we're so offended by our culture that we've stopped listening to what they are saying. You know, as Jesus followers, we've not only been crucified to the world, that's so true, we're no longer to be conformed to the patterns and the values of the world, but we've also been raised to new life so that we can go back into the world and rescue others. You know, as Jesus followers, we've been rescued from the darkness and given the light, not just so that we can be free from the darkness, but so that we have light to see our way back into the darkness and rescue others. As Jesus followers, we are not of this world, but we are sent into it. And Paul understood that truth. And he sought to find a space within their culture to engage with them, to listen to them. And that gave him an opportunity to speak to them. He used their questions as a bridge to share Jesus. And he starts with the Epicureans and Stoics. Now, that's just two big words, but it's just two different um, ideas, philosophies on life. The Epicureans believe that your mission in life should be to seek pleasure at all costs. And you had to avoid pain And any sort of sacrifice to do that, you just sought pleasure. That's all they were about. 
The Stoics, on the other hand, they believed that you needed to embrace pain, embrace suffering without complaining, without any emotion, and that the strength to do that came from within you. I kind of looked at those two philosophies and thought, there's sort of remnants in our, our world of those two, aren't there? Of those two philosophies. And so this, this is who Paul's talking to. And historians tell us that these philosophers were always on the lookout for a new god. They were always on the lookout for a new statue to add to the, into their Pantheon. Now, the Pantheon was just a big building in Athens that housed all the statues to their gods. So as they're listening to Paul, they're kind of thinking, oh... Maybe this will be a new God to add to our collection. Maybe, maybe Paul's God could kind of fit between Zeus and Apollos. We could maybe make a statue there. So it's almost like an interview. Let's see how Paul goes in his interview. Acts 17, 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship... I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you were ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. It's interesting, Paul didn't start by opening up his Bible. He didn't start with chapter and verse because he knew that the Athenians didn't recognize the authority of the scriptures, but rather he started with their questions. And he could only start with their questions because he knew what they were. I can see that you're religious. I can see that you're searching. Paul says, I can see that you're grappling with the unknown. Do we know the questions that the people in our community are asking? Are we engaged enough with people that we know the issues that they are grappling with? You see, Paul acknowledged that the Athenians are searching, and so too are most people around us. In your universities, in your school, in your workplace, people are searching You know why? Because God created us with this kind of God-shaped vacuum in our hearts. Like Josh said last week, that God has placed eternity in the hearts of all people. Now that longing, that desire has been kind of distorted by sin somewhat, but there are remnants of that in people. People are searching. And we're not to see people that are searching, people that are different from us, people that think differently, believe differently, look differently. They are not the enemy. People need to hear that this morning. They are not the enemy. They might be victims of the enemy, but they're not the enemy. And our beliefs are not supposed to exclude us from people. It is because of our belief that we are actually supposed to move towards people with compassion and the message of hope. And that's what Paul was trying to do in the Areopagus. He didn't allow his beliefs to exclude him from people, to be offended so much from them that he stopped listening, but he actually used his belief to move towards him with compassion. Let's continue reading Acts 17, 24 to 26. This is Paul. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. In other words, Paul is saying here, it doesn't really make sense that that the God 
that you worship would need you to make him a house to dwell in. It doesn't really make sense that he would need you to leave a little bit of mints and water out in case he gets hungry and thirsty overnight. See, the God I serve doesn't need human hands to serve him. He is God. He is Lord. He appointed times and places. He gave everything life and breath. So he's starting to point out the differences between his God and the Greek gods. Because the Greek gods were always a means to an end. So you served that God, you worshipped at the temple, you gave sacrifices because you wanted something in return. For example, Artemis. Artemis was a god of prosperity. You wanted to be rich, you wanted to win lotto. You went to um, Artemis's temple, you sacrificed at that temple. Athena. Now Athena, of course, was a goddess because she was wise. She was a goddess of wisdom, so she had to be female. And um, if you wanted to be wise... Then you would go to that temple. Nike, or Nike, the god of victory. If you wanted to run fast, if you want to be like Michael Jordan, you would go to that temple and worship at that temple. You know what? There was even a god of the sewers. I kid you not, Cloachina. Don't ask me how you made sacrifices to that god, but we'll move on. All these gods were a means to an end. Whatever you were looking for, money, wisdom, athleticism, Smoother bowel movements. You worship that God. <laughs> Just saying. They were a means to an end. And Paul understood this. Because he had lived under that works mentality. He had lived under that law-based religion. But now he'd had this face-to-face encounter with Jesus. And he had transformed his life. And he had now become a trafficker of the gospel of grace. And that's what he's trying to share with the Athenians here. Paul is saying, maybe this is the reason why you've got that statue to the unknown God. Maybe that's your just-in-case God, because you know deep down that there's more to life than this. And the best news is, Paul says, that God is not far from you. Acts 17, verse 27. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from from any one of us. I love that. God is not far from us. God is not far from you this morning. He is close. And so many people think that they have to span this great distance to get to God, that they've got to jump through hoops and behave a certain way and speak a certain way and look a certain way. But God is not far from each one of us and all he desires is for us to turn and he embraces us with his love and his forgiveness. And then in verse 28, Paul goes on and he says, these are two quotes here. He says, For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Now, are there any biblical scholars here? Here's a question for you. What Bible reference is Paul quoting when he says, For in him we live and move and have our being? Isaiah, Jeremiah. I always guess Deuteronomy because no one knows what's in Deuteronomy. So you can kind of say it and they go, oh, wow. Actually, he's quoting a Greek philosopher from 600 BC. And then he goes on to quote from one of their Stoic poets. So he's quoting from things embedded in their popular culture. He's using their poetry, their words, their music as a bridge to reach them for Jesus. So I guess one of the questions... I want to challenge us, and I say us because I was deeply challenged when I prepared this message. 
As Jesus followers, how do we respond to those people that we meet that think and believe differently from us? How do we respond to the Areopaguses, if you like, in our community? Do we boycott them? Do we say, well, I don't want anything to do with you because I'm living in my holy bubble? Do we get angry? Do we turn towards the Areopagus? Do we turn towards those people and speak words of judgment or criticism? Maybe not with our words, but maybe with our actions. Do we welcome people into our church, into our life, if they dress the same, look the same, speak the same? I hope not. I know you want to be a church. I know I want to be a church. We want to be a church that the unchurched actually want to come to. That actually seek to engage, seek to understand, seek to listen. That actually empathize. That we genuinely care with our words and with our actions. That we are sent into the world to be hope traffickers. We want to be an Acts 17 church in an Acts 17 world. Brian Houston said this recently in one of his blogs. He said, the central storyline of our faith is a story of love and redemption, a story of forgiveness and acceptance, a story of undeserved grace and unreserved mercy. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't look down on our chaotic, sin-filled, messy world and say, well, actually, I don't really want to get involved. It looks a bit too complicated or... I'm holy. I don't, I don't want to get myself tarnished down there. I don't want to get involved. No, he came. He came as a human. He lowered himself. He's the son of God. He lowered himself. He came as a servant right into the middle of our mess, of our chaos, of our sin, of our brokenness. And he laid down his life for us. He gave his life for us and for our world. And then he turned and gave us that mandate. And he said, you go into all the world, preach the gospel, baptizing people in the name of Jesus. And yes, I will be with you even to the ends of the world. We are not of this world, but we are sent into it. So let's have a look at the response of the people in that Areopagus. They just listened to Paul preach the good news. What's their response? Acts 17, 32 to 34. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Got three very different responses there. Number one, some mocked, laughed. Secondly, some were curious, they wanted to hear more. And finally, some believed. All these responses are Kind of normal, kind of to be expected. And actually, as Jesus followers, we should be experiencing all those responses. If we're truly truly reaching our community. When was the last time someone laughed at you for what you shared? When was the last time someone said, oh, tell me more? Actually, I want to know more. See, some conversations go for a few minutes, some go for months, some go for years. Don't give up on people. 
When was the last time you had the privilege of sharing Jesus with someone and they actually believed? Challenging questions, aren't they? But we need to be challenged because sometimes we can get comfortable. We can get comfortable in our little life, in our little church or big church. But God has called us to reach out, to truly want to engage and understand our community and share our story. You know, as the team come, I just want to share the words of a, a song that have been coming to me over and over and over again as I prepared this message. And I believe that they're for all of us. It's from a song that we, we used to sing, and it says this. Open up my eyes to the things unseen. Show me how to love like you have loved me. Break my heart for what breaks yours as I walk from earth into eternity. You see, you know, all this happened while Paul was simply waiting. And in a sense, we are waiting. We're walking from earth to eternity. This, this is not our home. This is just a small space in time where we have the opportunity to share the hope and the love of Jesus with all that we come across. But the words that really, really hit me hard will break my heart for what breaks yours. What breaks God's heart most? What breaks God's heart most? People that are living separated from Him with no hope. People that are helpless, hopeless, broken, stuck, addicted, enslaved, the poor, the oppressed. That's what breaks God's heart and that's what should break our heart. And a broken heart is not something that our flesh really would cry out for because a broken heart hurts. A broken heart is painful. But when our heart is broken for those that don't have the hope that we have found, then we're deeply affected to want to actually do something to bring about positive change. When our hearts are broken, we start to pray for those that don't know Jesus fervently and continually. When our hearts are broken, we're moved to compassion. We're actually moved to change. We're unable to sit still any longer and watch sin win. We want to be an Acts 17 world, a church in an Acts 17 world. Would you just pray with me? Bow your heads, close your eyes. Perhaps there's people here this morning that have come in here with questions that they are searching. And perhaps you've heard this message this morning and, and you've just got this tug on your heart and you know that Jesus is calling you. You might not understand everything you've heard, but you know that Jesus is calling you. I'm going to give you an opportunity this morning to say yes to Jesus. And it's simply just going to ask you in a moment to raise your hand if you want to say yes to Jesus. If you want to say yes to his grace and his love, his forgiveness, his eternal life. Because he is near. He is here this morning. He's not far from you. You don't have to jump through hoops and travel some great distance. All he asks is that you turn and believe. So I'm going to look now. Is there anyone here that perhaps you've wandered away or today you want to say yes to Jesus? Just raise your hand now. 
Awesome. Now I want to speak to the rest of us. You can open your eyes because we're, we're not uh, hiding from this. <laughs> I'm going to ask you this morning whether you want your heart broken. Whether you want your heart broken, maybe your heart's got a little bit hard or a little bit indifferent or a little bit apathetic. And you want your heart broken for the lost again. You want to be moved into action, moved into compassion, moved into praying more fervently and constantly. You want to be bolder. Whatever it is, I'm putting my hand up first. Is there anyone else here that would say, yeah, I need my heart broken? Yeah, really, most hands should be up. I'm sorry, but (laughs) would you stand with me? We're going to sing this song now. It says, Spirit, come, Spirit, come. We're going to ask Holy Spirit to come to mess up our hearts, to break our hearts for what breaks His, to open our eyes to the things unseen, to help us to love like He has loved us. And if you want that this morning, then sing this song like a prayer. If you want to come to the front and just say, oh God, I surrender, I just need you to break my heart, then do that. Do whatever it takes, but sing this as a prayer this morning.